the Magic Book Club podcast. Oh, what a pleasure it is. Uh, welcome to the Magic Radio Book Club uh, podcast. I can't even speak yet. The Magic Radio Book Club podcast. Sir Lenny Henry! If there was a posse, it would all be clapping. Ah, the days of the posse. This is two hands clapping. <laughs> it's lovely. Good morning, Emma. Good morning. Um, I do like your book very much. It's made me laugh a lot. Oh, thank you. I'm glad you're saying that because a lot of people... Um, talk about an overall air of uh, sadness of, of the book. But to me, you can't get to the happiness without the sad stuff too. Of course. And everybody has this stuff in their lives. It's not just me. And diaspora families, immigrant families particularly, the, the, just the general wrench of leaving one country to go to another involves certain amount of overcoming obstacles and getting to somewhere where you need to be and having to assimilate and get used to that new place. There are going to be moments where you have tough times. And my mom and my dad and me went through some tough times in this country. But what's great is I'm here today and I can look back at it and go, oh, that was interesting. That was an interesting time. It was, there's a lot of that kind of looking back with, with that, that was interesting. And it's, we'll, we'll get, we'll get onto it because it is, I'm fascinated by your tone when you look, when you look back, um, whether there is, there is uh, anger or bitterness or love or joy. Um, and it, and it is interesting where bits of those come from. The book's called Who Am I Again? And it makes perfect sense when you read it. I mean, it does make perfect sense. And it starts, it's the first bit of your life. I'm hoping leaving plenty of room for later bits well, of your the, life. Well, that's the, intention because if I'd written if I tried to fit the, the 60 years into one book I think <laughs> oh, it would be ridiculous so <laughs> I, I wrote up until about 20 or for the real friends from birth to tis was and hope that there's enough <laughs> petrol left in the tank <laughs> for the next bit do you know anybody else that can say I've done birth to tis was birth to tis was ladies and <laughs> gentlemen from my initial spawning to the phantom flanflinger <laughs> we'll get on to that's tis was. me so anyway I wanted to write about that bit first and you know People do, you know, Anton Trollope and, um, you know, Alan Bennett write, you know, different yeah. chapters of it. And then I had a cream cracker. You think, <laughs> hang on a minute, I can write a multiple volume memoir. Alan Bennett goes, oh, no, 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 it's gorgeous no, and he's, beautiful. He's it's brilliant. beautiful. He's it is one of beautiful. my heroes. He's amazing. He, he wrote me a postcard. He replied to a letter. Never. He did, yeah. He sent me a nice postcard. So um, I, I like him. I'm a big fan of his, but he's written multiple volumes and I don't think there's anything wrong with it, particularly if you've got a story to tell that has something to say about life in this country that we live in. Mm. And I think that it's it's a it's a personal story, but it's it's also a broader story because it's a young kid reacting to what was going on at the time. And I grew up in a, a, a quite a poor area of Dudley, um, near a park though. Near a park. Which was great. Yes. Um, down the road from a quite, a, we thought it was a posh school, but it wasn't a posh school, <laughs> called Blue Coat Secretary Modern, uh, with teachers who would literally write something on a board and then go out and have a, have a fag. <laughs> We had one teacher, two teachers that we liked. Mr. Brooks was my favourite teacher, science teacher. Oh, cool. And he had a sense of humour. So that's interesting, isn't it? Well, I kind of, I wondered whether or not, because it's in, in the chaos of that uh, those early years with your your, your mum and, and your dad, and geez, your mum coming over to the UK on her own. Yeah. That was, uh, that was an incredibly courageous thing for her to do. But it's not an unusual story. No. You know, lots of people, you know, came to Britain and then disappeared into the ether. My mum came to this country and started life anew. And her job was to earn money for the rest of the family to come to this country. And she came here and she met somebody, and that was it. And that's, yeah. why, that's why I'm here. Mm -hmm. So uh, she wrote to my dad and said, you know, something's happened and will you forgive me and everything? And he said, okay, I, I do forgive you. And he came over and that was it. He was my the dad who raised me. 
Uh, and it was interesting having a biological father and the dad who raised me. But interestingly, when we did Dan in the Human Zoo, which was a kind of parallel universe for my life, there was a moment in rehearsals when we said to uh, people, who here has other family that aren't of your biological family? And nearly everybody put their hand up. Yeah. So it's not an unusual story, particularly of... Uh, people from third world countries, it's not an unusual story. Migrant families, it's not unusual. Um, so I just thought, okay, I'm going to tell this story now. I'm 61, I'm allowed. Yeah. And, and that's why it's now and not 10 years ago. Do you, when the, there's there's a chapter, because we, we, we as, we're, as we're reading it, and I love that, I, 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 just as an aside, I love the way it's written. I love the, 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 the differentiation. I love the fact that it's not chronological necessarily. I love the characters. I love the cartoons. I love, it's just your brain on, on a page. Yeah. And it's such a refreshing autobiographical narration. It's Thank lovely. You. It's really nice to read. It's very, it can hear you in it page after page after page. When you look, with, there's a there's a specific um, a chapter that you sort of you sort of turn on racism and say, right, we're going to have a chat about it now because it, although it's mentioned and and we know that people came up to your mum and rubbed her face, saying, oh, is it going to come off? And there was casual racism every day. There's no sense of there's no sense of anger or bitterness necessarily flowing through it, and I think it feels like you then had to say, actually, no, we need to have a chat about this because I know you've seen it, to, you know, up to now. Yeah, I mean, the thing is that you you. What's interesting about things like racism and the Blitz and the Holocaust is that the people it's happening to just tend to gird their loins and go through it and you either fall victim to it or you don't. But generally, it you sort of endure. And I think that you endure that. I mean, people are killing you, that's one thing. But when you get through it, you come out the other side and look at it and go, that was an interesting time. Let's never do that again. Yeah. Let's say we did that and then never talk about it ever again. And you get through it. You get through the blitz. You get through these things. And my family went through a great deal and their parents went through a great deal and their parents went through a great deal of stuff. So the end result of that is utter poverty in Jamaica and then coming to Britain for another life and then having to endure walking around seeing keep Britain white on all the walls and NF and all those things blacks out and all that kind of stuff and then being a you know my mom being chased down the street by kids saying where's your tail where's your monkey tail and things like that my brother's being set upon by thugs um whenever they went out actually so at school interestingly by the time my mom said integrate you have a integrate there'd been a kind of a, a break in hostilities. we just had the rivers of blood speech. I was about 10, and she was saying, you've got to assimilate, or if we, if we respond to violence with violence all the time, we're going to end up in prison. So you've got to figure out a way to get on with people, otherwise it's not going to work. And so we were encouraged to go out and be with people and mix with people and not isolate. Yeah. We, we were told to assimilate. And I think that was probably the making of me. Well, that the, the mimicking, the trying to fit in, the using your a, voice. That's a diaspora thing. I yeah. think that one of the things that you do as a, as a migrant, as a diaspora, is you wear different masks for different situations. It's a way of not just black people or brown people, but lots of people do this. You adopt a persona depending on where you are at the time. And I think that lots of migrants come to the new country and go, right, I better learn it. I better learn the local dialect. I better figure out what people eat. Even if it's horrible, I better figure out how to eat it. Yes. I better work out what banter is. I've got to find a way to bedoying racism back at people. Um, and not have this thing, because, you know, you had this thing of, can't you take a joke? I remember a very famous white comedian 
saying to me, can't you take a joke? Because he'd made about three or four racist comments to me and I called him on it. And I said, well, hang on a minute. I love you on the telly. My mum used to think you were great. Why are you making these jokes? And he said, if you can't take a joke, that's part of being British. You know, you don't have a chip on your shoulder about it. And that was a common trope throughout yeah. me um, growing up in this country. The idea that if you took offence at a racist comment, you had a chip on your shoulder. And much of the thing about being PC or being non-racist or being civil is just that. It's about having manners. Don't say something to somebody that you would take offence of if it was bedoined back at you. So I think that a lot of this stuff about representation and civility is just about good manners. Absolutely. Absolutely. Look, you do mention this as well. What I think is also amazing... Um, and I didn't realise um, about about your your early career. How much you'd done by the time that you were nineteen? And looking back, and you do reference um, uh, some of the other Hollywood young stars. And looking back, uh, at how much you'd done, and how you were guided from fifteen, sixteen. Yeah. And does that make you feel uneasy, or are you is it? Are you grateful? You've got to be grateful because you you are where you are. But is it an uneasy reflection? How much you were working at such an early age. As a young black kid, I could have done without being in the Black White Minstrel show. That was I'm in a <laughs> I'm in I'm in Oxford bags, tank tops, shirts with very big collars. I'm wearing platform shoes and I got an afro. I'm about eight foot tall when I walk into a disco. What I don't need is to be in a minstrel show. This show it was It went on forever. And it was an it was an award-winning show. People in Britain just accepted it as Saturday night entertainment. It's nobody's fault. It was an institution that, that was of its time. But its origination was this caricature of slaves in the 19th century. And this guy called Stephen Foster wrote all these songs and the minstrels appropriated them. On the Mississippi, on the Mississippi, oh, where the boats loud. are rolling along. I know all these words because I was in the minstrel show for five years. I was, and I wasn't blacked up or anything. I was a um, second spot comet, they called it. I went on second after the compare and did 12 minutes. That's all I did in the minstrel show. But I did it for about five years and it was kind of a big affecting thing to me. There was an element of sadness throughout that entire period because I didn't quite know what I was doing, where I belonged or why I was there. And grown-ups have made the decision for me, me to be yes. in the show. And the argument was, Lenny's, Lenny's green and he needs to learn about how to be in the business and how to do a show. So the minstrels would be a good place for him to work because the audience aren't there to see the comedians. They're there to hear the old songs and to see the pretty costumes. Sure. But the problem was it was this archaic anomaly of a show. It was racist in its intention. Um, but everybody sort of ignored that, as they do in this country of ours. They tend to ignore things that, even, even by their appearance, are overtly racist. And it's... And the words, it's just a bit of fun or it's just something that we do or it's been around for ages, what's your problem, tend to get thrown at you. But there I was in the middle of it all. And I'd walk on stage and I'd be the only black person within a 40-mile radius. And I think my mum came once but wore a brown paper bag over her head so nobody would recognise her. But I knew she was there because I'd hear her go, Hey! Why? He's as good as Tarbuck! So I, I'd get that. So I knew she was there. But um, my brother Seymour, um, you know, I love my brother Seymour, but... I wanted him to come and rescue me with a SWAT team. Yeah, please do. What are you doing on a minstrel show? Follow me, we're going out the window. <laughs> but it never happened. It's, I mean, if that doesn't encapsulate the title, Who Am I Again? I Don't Know What Does. And it takes, the book takes us all the way up to Tiswas. By the way, 
But I was in the cage. I'm a no. Birmingham. I was in the cage. I was in the cage. I'm a wow. Birmingham girl and I was in the cage. You should have that as a tattoo or something, Emma. You're clearly exercised <laughs> about it. You want to tell the world that you were in the cage. Was, as a woman of the 21st century, exactly. you were in a cage. I am now out. Right on. You're out the cage now. <laughs> I spent many summers in our garden upside down doing the, uh, the dying fly. The dying fly, fly Oh, yeah. geez. It was, um, it, I mean, Tiswas was the beginning of freedom for me. I was still in the minstrel show about 1978. 79 but tis was a very pivotal point because i was suddenly in a show where i could be my own age yeah i could wear my own clothes and i could be stupid and silly like i was at the time and people really responded to it and i think i talk about it in the book but tis was like jumping off a magnificent yeah. cliff onto a fantastically bedoingy trampoline uh, forward into my new career and everybody nobody talked about um the minstrels when i was doing the um tis was but they all knew that this was the beginning of something, not the end of something. And they all really willed me to get out of that show. And after about even a year of doing Tiswas, I started to think and be brave enough to go, actually, I've got to get out of the minister show and I'm going to tell them that I'm not going to do it anymore. And I, d I did, 79. I don't want to do this show anymore. And um, Robert Luff, the, the entrepreneur in charge of it, who, I, who ended up being my manager yeah. for some reason, he was lovely, said, OK, fine, let's do something else. And I did. It was uh, uh, Saturday morning with Tiswas was a life-affirming thing. Um, and, uh, and and I look forward to hearing so much more. But I, I've really enjoyed it. I've really enjoyed it. You've made me smile on my commute, my dull commute in every day. And, and for much. that, I am uh, eternally grateful. Um, th the other spectacularly exciting thing about this book uh, is that we're doing it, I'm saying we, I'm at, I'm writing myself <laughs> into your live me. show. <laughs> You're doing a tour. We're doing a one-man, well, we're doing a Q&A style tour. I, I do the first part and talk about the book in a more writerly way. It's, it's still funny, but there are more readings in part one. And then part two is more free. A, a colleague called John Cantu, who's a writer, novelist, and comedy writer in his own right, interviews me for all of part two, and I mess around a lot. And I talk about um, other stuff apart from the book, but I still draw it back to the book. But it's, it's not as serious as part one. But well, it's, it's a really good night. Uh, it sounds like a superb combination of the prospect of you messing around um, uh, on the stage is just a fantastic one. Thank you very much. And um, I, I really like that you like the book. It's really weird having spent two years in a room on my own in my pants eating rich tea biscuits <laughs> and wondering if this is going to be any good. To suddenly have people start saying what they think about it is great. Um, and I'm, thank you for leaving me with such a such a gorgeous image. Um, I will carry I'm not that sure with you. <laughs> you take care. There's loose um, women on in the background. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure as always. You take care.